This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week, we invite two researchers from different fields to share what they've been working on. And then we ask them to ask each other questions, to make connections, and to build bridges. Sometimes when we're putting these shows together, those bridges seem obvious, and sometimes they materialize in really unexpected ways. Occasionally, we don't find them at all, but that's life, because when you bring together two worlds, you never really know what you're going to get. Today, we're talking to two people who study what happens when you bring things together. Joining us today is Shafali Padel, an organizational psychologist whose research has recently focused on what happens when police are confronted by people they don't think understand them. She's joining us from Austin, Texas, the home of one of the best live music scenes in the country, and that is a scientific fact. Hi, Shafali. Hi, Matthew. Also with us today is Dan McNulty, who studies large mammals and ecosystems ranging from the mountains of northern Utah to the polar deserts of the high Arctic. And I'm guessing there's not a lot of live music in either of those places, right, Dan? There's not. Welcome. Hi, Matthew. First up today, the organizational psychologist. what I need. It's a college boy. You haven't found one thing you like about me yet, have you? Well, it's early yet. It's your degree? Sociology. Uh, sociology? Oh, you'll go far. If you live, I intend to. That's a clip from one of Clint Eastwood's most famous movies, Dirty Harry, which was in many ways a lament for the ways in which the public, and especially, at least in Harry's mind, the hippie, bleeding-heart liberals who run the city of San Francisco, didn't understand the challenges of police work. The disconnect between police and the public is at the heart of the work of Shafali Padel and the subject of a study recently published in Administrative Science Quarterly called The Public Doesn't Understand. Shafali Padel, this all started with a massive Pew Research study of eight thousand U.S. police officers. It showed that the overwhelming majority, some 86 percent, I think, believe the public doesn't understand the jobs they do. Can you talk about that big study a little bit? Yes. So this was like the Post-Ferguson and incidents in Baltimore, New York City, et cetera. The list kind of goes on, where because of the increased public criticism, the scrutiny, especially how police were portrayed on media, the vast majority of police officers kind of were getting the sense that the public wasn't looking at their side of the story and how difficult their jobs are. In organizational psychology, we call this an image discrepancy. It's kind of like a clash between how you view yourself and how how you think others view you. And were there studies like this going back in the past, or was this a really large research effort on the part of a lot of people at this time in response to something that was going on in our nation at the time? So I think the issue of policing in America, it kind of pops in and out of media. I think the the police-public divide has been there for ages. I think it's just particularly heightened at this time, and this was just a massive study that was able to be done. And you wanted to understand this better. So you went and you asked police officers, working police officers, about how society should deal with crime. And two groups emerged. Can you talk a little bit about those two groups? What I was interested in was, okay, how are cops dealing with this so-called image discrepancy, right? So I kind of wanted to see how officers were behaving on patrol because of these image discrepancies derived from criminal justice work. I looked at, you know, the underlying political ideologies when it comes to how should society deal with criminals 
So, you know, on one side, you have the more liberal approach, which is more emphasis on rehabilitation, more emphasis on the sources of crime, like broken families, poverty, etc. A lot of what we call as community policing, community outreaching, that's all kind of warped into the more politically liberal kind of view of criminal justice. On the other side, we have the more conservative view that is more, you know, an eye for an eye punishment and the belief that in order to deter crime, you should take a more harder approach to longer sentencing, those kind of things. That's a way to protect communities. You know, when I read this study, I instantly got in my head, there's like the Dirty Harry group and then like the Dirty Harry's partner group, like the people who believe in like tough policing and the people who believe a little bit more in in empathy. It's tough policing, the hardline approach versus more um, empathetic, softer, trying to understand community members and the problems that they're kind of facing. So after you reviewed this body camera footage, data, really, something surprising, or at least it was surprising to me, came out of this experience. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you could draw a hypothesis either way. You could say it's like liberal police officers would be more understanding that the public doesn't understand, right? And you could say that more conservative, hardlined officers get more upset with the public. But what I actually found was the exact opposite, where the more empathetic police officers, they were the ones who are actually experiencing performance drops. I got expert raters to kind of rate the behaviors of these officers. These guys are from a different city. They were retired division commanders. So they've had experience both on patrol and also in internal affairs investigation. So they were just rating basic behaviors of these police officers. And if you actually graph out the results, you'll see like the more empathetic police officers actually experience a drop when they feel that the public doesn't understand the difficulties of the job. But the more conservative officers actually don't experience anything. They continue to be effective. So this was really surprising to me. Why do you think the officers who support what we might call softer approaches to crime receive mm-hmm. poorer ratings in their interactions with people on a day-to-day basis? Here's the thing. If you have a more empathetic approach to fighting crime, you expect the public to reciprocate, right? Because you're basically reaching out to them saying, I want to understand you better, but you're not getting uh, any reciprocation back, right? And that's a basic human instinct. When we're trying to reach out to people and they don't reciprocate, you're kind of more hurt by it. On the other hand, the more hardline officers, they kind of expect the public to not understand them, right? They're officers. That's why they go through specialized training. They're the ones who carry the uniform. They're the ones who carry the badge. So if the public doesn't understand the job, they're already like, yeah, I don't expect them to. You had to watch a lot of body camera footage in the process of doing this study. What did you see that surprised you? So it's very interesting because I was working with body camera coders that were in a different city. Both of them came from the same city, retired from the same positions, but they themselves didn't always agree on certain types of videos and certain types of behaviors. And I, I think one of the things that surprised me is like there are incredibly uh, huge variation on what defines good policing and good policing tactics. So there's no standardization. And I thought that was kind of interesting and surprising and not completely what I expected. I thought, you know, police would have a very much basic standardized approach to training and how to deal with public, but it, it, it's, it's hugely varied. How did you first get into studying police-public interactions? Where did that come from for you? 
I did a lot of my dissertation work on the ironies of accountability systems. It just so happened like during, you know, the, the Ferguson and the events that kind of followed after that. Law enforcement, I think, was a perfect example um, of an incident where I was like, there is increased scrutiny and criticism, but like, what are we exactly getting out of it? Um, and I think the interesting thing is that, you, you know, a lot of the public criticism, public understanding, you're hurting the police officers that agencies usually want to recruit. There are a lot of shifts towards community policing. And what we're seeing is like those various officers are just unable to handle the public misunderstandings. Crime and the issues of more liberal versus more conservative approaches is fascinating and like highly debatable, right? And there's just a lot more work to be done and a lot that we just don't kind of like understand what the best approach kind of is. That's Shafali Padel, whose recent study on how police attitudes about enforcement impact their behaviors on the job was published in Administrative Science Quarterly. Shafali, can you stick around and chat more at the end of the show? Yes, absolutely. Those, of course, are wolves. And while we commonly say wolves like to howl at the moon, experts have found no connection between the phases of the moon and the noises that these amazing animals make. In fact, according to our next guest, wolves actually tend to hunker down at night because their vision isn't optimized for nocturnal hunting. Joining us now is Dan McNulty, an ecologist whose work centers on a long-term collaborative study of wolves and ungulates in Yellowstone National Park and whose recent article in Ecological Monographs makes the case that because wolves aren't round-the-clock hunters, the landscape of fear that many people expected to see when they were reintroduced to Yellowstone might not be quite so scary after all. Dan, let's talk about this idea of a landscape of fear. It's been a popular idea for a while. What was the thought? First off, it's important to understand what a landscape of fear is, because I think there's some misunderstanding about that. What it is, is a map that describes continuous change in the predation risk that a prey, like an elk, perceives as it's navigating the physical landscape. So it's a mental map of risk, and it's a map that's overlaid on top of the physical landscape. The peaks and valleys on this map correspond to places that the prey animal perceives as dangerous or safe. So it is very much a, a map of perception. And a lot of times, a lot of papers that write about the landscape of fear don't actually quantify the map. They talk about it in very abstract terms. What we did in this work is we took four years of location data from GPS radio-colored elk, 27 of them, and we quantified this spatial perception that these elk have of their landscape based on the distribution of where they're killed by wolves as well as the activity patterns of wolves. Because you did this with with wolf data too, right? It was 27 GPS radio-collared elk and some GPS-collared wolves as well? Correct. It was over a longer period of time. It may have been as many as 25 to 30 over maybe a decade or more. And both of these animals, they... They move across territory pretty good, so you're seeing some pretty big ranges of where they're going, I assume. 
Yes, I mean, this is about a thousand square kilometer area, northern Yellowstone. We are also observing wolves directly uh, hunting. So during the daylight hours, we were able to actually observe wolves hunting because it's it's an open landscape. And wolves are daylight hunters. They're not the nocturnal hunters that are often featured in film and Hollywood and so, so forth. Wolves are hunting, their peak activity is more between 8 and 10 a.m. The key finding here with the study is that the elk's perception of the landscape as risky, areas that were risky, areas that were safe, that perception fluctuates over the 24-hour cycle based on the activity pattern of wolves. Elk are not constantly apprehensive because wolves are very predictable in their daily schedule. And so the elk modify their their activity pattern and their use of the landscape. They mold it around the schedule of wolves. So for the elk, there's not just one place where they say, well, the wolves are going to be there, so I'm not going to be there. They're they're on the clock. Absolutely. It it reminds me of um, those classic uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons where the coyote, you know, clocks in. I don't know if it's the sheep or Bugs Bunny or somebody, you know, until that coyote clocks in, you know, they don't really care what the coyote's doing. But once he clocks in, then it's, you know, action. How is it that these data hadn't been used in this way before? Because this is pretty old. A lot of this was pretty old radio caller data. It was just sitting there. Well, part of it was sitting there. So we had 27 individuals, elk I'm talking about now, that had these GPS caller data sets. 11 individuals had data sets that just sort of were forgotten, really. We became aware of those data, and we thought, you know, we really need to take a harder look at these. Your conclusions ran counter to what had become sort of a popular view about the ecological importance of fear. Has there become pushback? There's an ongoing debate in the ecological literature about the conceptual and practical importance of fear. And scientists that have studied smaller organisms, smaller mammals or insects, birds, they often find very strong effects of fear, whereas in these larger animal systems, the effects are much more nuanced if they occur at all. And one of the reasons for that is that in these larger animal systems, the prey are oftentimes relatively larger than the predator. Some of the classic studies that have talked about these fear effects have looked at spiders and grasshoppers. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen an elk, but they tower over a wolf, you know, and it's quite dangerous for a wolf to, to kill the elk. There's a lot of fear on the predator side of the equation. And the reason for that is because wolves have a very limited array of weapons to draw from to kill an elk. Uh, all they have are their teeth. They have to be very quite selective in who it is that they, they chase down because if they make the wrong choice, they could get a hoof in the head, they could get stomped on, they could get killed. What are the next steps in this area of research? One of the other big gaps in our understanding of these fear effects, particularly in these wild, free-ranging systems that often have more than one predator in them, is how is the effects of fear for multiple predators, how does a prey manage those effects? So elk don't have to just deal with wolves, they have to deal with mountain lions, they have to deal with grizzly bears, and oftentimes they're dealing with these predators at different times of year. And so one of the big focal areas of research right now in my group is trying to analyze what these simultaneous effects are. And are there some predators that have stronger effects? 
And the other thing, too, to keep in mind is that elk are very long-lived. 50% of them will survive beyond 17 years of age. Wolves are only really targeting female elk that are beyond really the age of 11 or 12. And so the age of the prey is very important in understanding how what its behavioral response is. So the life history of the organism is really important in terms of understanding what the impact of the predator is on that organism. That's Dan McNulty, whose recent article in the journal Ecological Monographs reassesses the long-held notion that a landscape of fear drives prey behavior. Dan, can you stick around and chat with our first guest? Oh, I'd love to. Thanks. Well, in that case, Dan, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Shafali Pottle. And Shafali, this is Dan McNulty. Hi, Dan. Nice to meet you. Hi, Shafali. Nice to meet you as well. So, Dan, you were listening as I chatted with Shafali about her examinations of how beliefs drive behavior, particularly in police and public interactions. What questions or observations did I miss? What, What did you want to ask her? Well, you know, as I mentioned, the life history of the organisms that I study, specifically their age, plays a big role in mediating the outcomes of the, the interactions between, in this case, predator and prey. And I'm just wondering, Shafali, how does, specifically the, the age of the officers, how does that influence the outcome and the efficacy of policing, the effectiveness of policing? Does this age of the officer have a role in that? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question, Dan. So I actually did not find any effects of age. Um, so that was definitely a statistical control in my data. And I didn't find for whatever, you know, criminal justice philosophies they had, whether more liberal or conservative, age actually did not play a role. Where I do find age playing a role, and I guess we could all relate to it, is when it comes to organizational change. When it comes to body cameras, so a lot of police agencies are implementing body cameras. There is a ton of resistance against body cameras, mainly from the more senior police officers who are very averse to new technology. But it's the younger recruits who are kind of growing up in the age of increased monitoring and increased scrutiny. So the effects of body cameras and the increased anxiety and apprehension that officers face are actually far more pronounced among more senior folks than it is from the younger recruits. And do you have a sense of whether or not a, you know, a member of the public that a police officer interacts with, do they interact with that officer differently if it's, say, an older officer or a younger officer? Does that have any effect on, on, on those interactions? So I didn't code for the behavior of the citizen back. So like my body camera raiders were very much asked to rate only the officers. So I haven't looked at like, I guess what you're asking for is for dyadic patterns mm-hmm. of behavior. And you know, I, don't, I don't know if any other research kind of has looked into that either. Okay. Shafali, you were listening in while I was chatting with Dan. What were ideas that you came up with or questions that you wanted to ask? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, Dan, so first of all, your, your work is absolutely fascinating, and I never thought I would be talking to somebody from your field and actually find a lot of connections with it. So thank you to Matthew for drawing the connections. Oh. Hooray, um, this is what we do this yeah. for. <laughs> so your whole landscape of fear. So the thing that you, you were mentioning about constant apprehension and feeling of fear, So that's actually what I find with the more empathetic police officers is that they're constantly feeling the sense of fear. Like Mm -hmm. they don't know when they're getting out and responding to a call. They're just continuously hesitating because they're just so fearful of making like the wrong move. 
And a lot of my, like, next kind of, like, research is trying to, like, figure out how do you decrease the sense of, like, fear and, you know, like what they're calling is the Ferguson effect, where police officers are less proactive. They see somebody in danger, and especially if it comes from a minority community member, they just will not go above and beyond what their basic kind of job calls for. So what I was kind of interested in is you mentioned that these were GPS, um, but I'm curious if you're able to do like other like blood pressure, those kind of things that are signals of anxiety and whether the life expectancies of those elk who are more adaptive and more discerning of risk versus those elk who are just continuously fearful and whether those life expectancies differ. Well, in this study, we only had 27 individual elk that were monitored, you know, from one to four years. And so really, our sample size precluded making those sort of fine scale distinctions. And we we did, we actually made an effort to look to see whether or not the older portion of that 27, whether they were more sensitive to a spatial variation in risk, and, and we just didn't find it. And, and part of that was just because we didn't have a very large sample. Um, we didn't just we didn't see an age effect. Now, since 2011, we've uh, been collaring more and more elk, and we've been basically repeating this analysis that we did that's the subject of this particular paper. And what's interesting with the, this more recent set of data is that we're not finding much of an effect of wolves at all, both in time and in space. And this is this is sort of some ongoing work, but one of the hypotheses is that, well, maybe it has something to do with the age structure of the sample. Maybe this the age distribution of the sample is, is much younger. But that's really speculation at this point because we haven't gotten to testing that yet. We're actually right in the process of analyzing those data now. But if I could just circle back and make one point or comment about what you mentioned about some officers being more fearful in the sort of ecological literature, animal ecology literature, there seems to be sort of an emerging consensus that the fear of a prey animal with respect to its predator has a lot to do with how predictable that predator is in time and space. The more unpredictable the predator is, the more fear the animal, the prey, will have because the prey isn't really sure, you know, where and when is that predator going to pop up. You know, with wolves, they're very predictable, as I said, in time. We know when they're active. We know when they're inactive, generally. Spatially, you know, they're a wide-ranging predator that I can kind of show up anywhere, but not at any time. And so prey are sort of, a, you know, elk are, are ready for them at certain hours of the day. And so I'm wondering if with the police officers, if it's a similar situation. That put, I, I mean, I can just imagine showing up at someone's doorstep and knocking on the door and, and being fearful just simply because I don't know who's going to answer the door and what kind of mood they're going to be in. I can, so at the unpredictability of policing, I can imagine, contributes mightily to fear. W- would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, when I when I do interviews and I ask police officers, so what exactly does the public not understand about your job? They say exactly what you just said. They said that like for every call, they just have no idea what they're walking into, right? When somebody calls 911, the pieces of information that they get are just basically kind of the location and like a little bit of a description of what's going on, right? But you have no idea. Is it a hoax? 
You have no idea. I mean, the sad tragedy that happened in Dallas, where it's an ambush, like they're calling just, you know, to, to shoot cops. But these are all the realities that they have to deal with. And that's exactly what they say is that for every single call, it's completely unpredictable. So they are in a hyped up mode because of the unpredictability. And it's very difficult. And I think this is where some agencies fail. It's like you have to continuously train officers, but a lot of agencies don't have the kind of resources to continuously put their officers through that kind of training. But that's exactly right. It's like they're they're walking into situations where they have to kind of assume the worst. And there are, of course, they, you know, there are some people who say that, well, what if we train officers to not assume the worst and things like that? But then, you know, police officers kind of push back and saying, well, that's not the realities of the types of people and the types of situations that they're kind of dealing with. Well, and so I think that, you know, the fact that predators in the systems that I study are quite predictable in time and space, I think that's one reason why in these large animal systems, fear may not play the kind of role that a lot of scientists and members of the public may think it plays in terms of driving ecological processes, because these predators are pretty predictable in various ways, both in time and space, depending on the specific predator that you're talking about. I'm never disappointed by the interactions that I have found between the researchers on this show, but I am disappointed to say we're out of time. Shafali Pottel, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. And Dan McNulty, thank you. Thanks, Matthew. It's been a pleasure. If you would like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.